Good job, guys. That sounded great. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone here today. It's kind of humorous to me, at least. Um, I must have. I, I was communicating with Pastor Becker about the scripture reading, and uh, it doesn't matter. Maybe I said Second Thessalonians, or maybe he heard it, but it was actually First Thessalonians. So, if you notice the screen, and anyway, and then when at the end he said, "I'm kind of curious to see how he ties that in." I'm like, "So am I." <laughs> I'm really curious to see. <laughs> so just to have fun with that. Well, we'll be back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 13 this morning. I, I better get my passage right, right? We're going to be all over the place. <laughs> you won't know what's going on. <laughs> and the reason I had 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 as the scripture reading in mind was because Paul mentions faith, hope, and love. In that passage, and that's exactly what we're going to see in our passage today in 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> now here it is, we're, you know, we're the week leading up to Thanksgiving, we celebrate that this Thursday. I know a lot of us are looking forward to that, we've got plans with family and friends, and, and uh, again, it's, a, it's meant to be a time that we set apart especially to really consider our blessings and to and to be grateful and thankful. We know that that is meant to characterize the Christian life at all times, but again, this is a special time where we can corporately and as a church or a family really come together and express our thanksgiving together. And as we go up to this season now, Thursday's Thanksgiving and then beyond that, we know right away it's Christmas season, right? I mean, you see in Menards, the Christmas trees have been up for a while now. I mean, it pretty much goes Halloween, Christmas. <laughs> now the trees are up usually before Halloween's even over. Every year a little earlier, the Christmas trees go up. And so we're now in that holiday season, right? And, and with that comes a lot of extra activity. And it's easy for us during this time of year to start to get caught up in the activity of it all and really start missing what these times are meant to be about. It's easy to get caught up in the preparations, getting the dish just right for the meal, uh, getting the decor just right, uh, planning parties and events and getting invitations out and finding the perfect gifts. And, And all these things can be enjoyable and things we we like to do, but they can become the focus, right, during this season. And they can actually be kind of overshadow what this time is supposed to be about, about being a blessing to others and just, again, being thankful. And then beyond that, in the Christmas time, celebrating what God has done, the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world And so it's easy for us to get off track, and it's easy for us to prioritize the things that are are not as important. And that's not just this time of year, that's any time of year. It can be whatever we're facing. We can misprioritize things in our life, and we can begin to value things over better things. We We can value good things over the best things, and we get priorities mixed upside down sometimes. That describes the Corinthians and everything we've seen as we've been going through this book. A people who would say 
They loved the Lord and they loved God's grace and wanted to serve him. But in their lives, everything was upside down. They were prioritizing things that were not so important over the things that mattered most. And in our passage this morning especially, we return to this chapter that's all about love in the Christian life and what that looks like. And we find here a church that was prioritizing spiritual gifts over love. And if you want to know what that looks like, just read this epistle. (laughs) If you start forgetting about love at work in the Christian life, we are on the path that the Corinthians were on. That's where it'll take us. It'll become self-serving, selfish, uh, just all that kind of thing. And again, Paul here is calling our attention to what matters most in the Christian life, and that is love, living out love in the Christian life. That is primary. That's what God wants to produce in us toward each other and those outside in the world to love them. So in this chapter, we've looked at how love is supreme in the first three verses, and then we looked at the character of love in verses seven, or excuse me, four through seven, and now we're going to talk about the permanence of love, the permanence of love. That's what Paul is expressing here, again, to make the point that this is the most important virtue in the Christian life. Verse 8 says, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide. Faith, hope, love, these three. But notice this last part, and you've got the point. But the greatest of these is love. Again, that last portion is what Paul is seeking to establish. The greatness of love. First of all, we're going to notice that, again, love is forever. Love is forever. And that's what verse 8 directs our attention to right away when he says, Love never fails. Another way to translate that is love never ceases. Love will never cease. It will never fall away. It's not going anywhere. Love is forever. That's what Paul's expressing here. Love is eternal, really. If we can think back before the creation of the world, there was God. Existing as a holy trinity, three persons in one divine essence. And he existed in perfect fellowship with and in himself. And all the things that we think of when we think of God, like love and joy and peace and holiness and justice, were all perfectly realized even within the Godhead. Love has always been because God has always been. And as 1 John says, God is love. So love has always been present. 
because it's always been in the heart of God. Love has been forever. And what this passage is saying is love will continue on forever. And it will actually continue on in our hearts into eternity future. Now, sometimes verse 8 is read probably with a different idea than I think what Paul's saying. When we read the words, love never fails, we may come away with the idea that if we love someone, that will, that will guarantee success in that relationship. That it won't fail. That it will somehow work things out in a relationship between two people or something down that line. And I think we have to understand that that's not what Paul's expressing here. That's not the point. The point here is the timelessness of love. It'll never fail. But it doesn't mean that when you love someone, it's always going to go the way you want it to. And that's borne out in the history of Scripture. Right? God created Adam and Eve and he loved them, but they they fell into sin. Through Scripture, God demonstrates his love toward man. He loved the nation of Israel and they turned to idols. We see examples like that. Jesus Christ came into the world. He loved everyone. In his influence, in his presence, he loved them. And at the end, he was crucified. Right? So that doesn't mean that love is always going to win in that sense. Because in a relationship, the other person has to make a decision. The other person has a will. And they can reject it. They can reject our love just like they reject the love of God. Because if you're rejecting Jesus Christ, you're rejecting the love of God. You're saying, I don't want it. That's not what this passage is talking about here. I can remember as a teenager, I was saved at 14, and I can kind of remember vaguely in my mind thinking of some of my friends, and I I was somewhat vocal about my faith and wanting to share the gospel and wanting to lead others to Christ, and hopefully they would make the same decision I had made as I had placed my faith in Christ at that age. And I remember thinking in my head that if I love them, I'm going to win them to Christ. If I love them, I'm going to win them. And I shared the truth in love, and most of them didn't really want it. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And you think, wow, what, what's this verse talking about? Love doesn't fail. Well, again, love never ceases. It's been present forever in the Godhead. It'll be present forever in the future. And Paul's making the point. The things the Corinthians seemed to love the most, which are spiritual gifts that they had, the things they could do because of the Spirit's work in their life, they put those over love. And he says, let me tell you something. Those are going to stop one day. But love never will. Get your priorities straight. That's what he's saying here in this passage. And that takes us into verse 8 a little bit deeper where he says, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And I think the point is simple here. Spiritual gifts would cease. Spiritual gifts would cease. Now, what Paul has in mind here is the same thing he's been talking about since chapter 12, uh, Verse 1, Go just look back across the page, 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. What are the spiritual gifts he was talking about? Well, look at uh, verse uh, 7, 
And on from there, he says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. He said the manifestation of the Spirit. This is how the Spirit was proving he was with somebody and in their lives he was giving gifts at that time. Supernatural gifts. Abilities they didn't have before they knew Christ and they were spirit empowered and they were miraculous. And it proved to everyone around that what God was doing in their lives was really of God. The miracles proved they were preaching the word of God in those times. And you notice there the same three that we read in chapter 13, verse 8, were mentioned in that list. Tongues, knowledge, and prophecy. So I believe Paul still has in mind supernatural sign gifts, the miraculous. The Corinthians were all about these things. It, it, it indicates that they, kind of, they really spoke in tongues a lot. They had a prevalence of that gift. But they were putting that above all other things. And Paul is clear here. Love will never cease. It will never fall away. But that which you are prizing, it is only temporary. The knowledge there would... Uh, how does it say it there in verse 8? It, it said, they will fail, or it will vanish away. Or in the Greek, it means, it will be rendered inoperable. It will be rendered idle. It, would, it will just, the idea of stopping again, of going away. And again, in the context, I have to connect that with the word of knowledge by the Spirit he talked about earlier. Again, a quick example, I think, of what that knowledge was is, when you go back, if you read in Acts chapter 5, and Ananias and Sapphira, that story, remember that? They sold property, they lied about it, they schemed about it, they went up to Peter, and Peter said to each one of them individually, uh, you're lying, <laughs> you're lying to God. How do you know that? Because he was given a word of knowledge in the moment. The Spirit revealed it to him in a miraculous way. He knew things without anybody telling him. Supernatural sign gifts at that time. And that, he says, Paul says, that kind of knowledge... It's only temporary. It won't be around forever. The tongues, the same way. It says they will cease or pause. They will end. This is the one the Corinthians love the most. The tongues, the tongues. I can speak in foreign languages. Speak languages they didn't know until the Spirit came upon them. And he says they will cease. They're only temporary. And the other one he mentions is the gift of uh, prophecy. I skipped over prophecy. The prophecies, they will fail. And it's the same word that's used of the knowledge. It will be rendered inoperable. Again, the time is coming when this supernatural gift of prophecy was going to end. And again, prophecy can mean to speak forth, but it can also mean to foretell. And in the Acts period, especially, you see examples of individuals who were given messages and uttered things that came directly from God to them. There's a man named Agabus in the book of Acts, and he's, one of the, he's called a prophet, and he predicts a famine at one point. And later, 
he predicts that Paul will be bound in Jerusalem. How did he know those things? Because the Spirit revealed it to him, a direct message. That's the kind of prophecy I think Paul has in mind in this passage. Again, this supernatural gift of prophecy. We sometimes call this a revelatory gift. So prophecy and knowledge, God imparting into the individual a, a, a something they wouldn't know otherwise or giving them a, sp- a special message for the day, that's God revealing something. We call that revelatory gifts. And I believe what Paul's saying to the Corinthians again is, you love your prophecy, you love your knowledge, you love your tongues, but I'm telling you they're not only around for a little, bit, little while longer. They're temporary. But love, that which you seem not to care about, that's forever. So it challenged them to put their priorities in the correct order. See, again, this was a people who prized the gifts of the Spirit over the fruit of the Spirit. The transformation God wants to work in each of our lives. And so Paul, again, he's giving this this correction to their thinking. You need to see it from this angle. Love never ceases. Love is forever in verse 8. Now as we go on, Paul continues to flesh out this idea he's said in verse 8. He begins to further explain what was going to happen and how these things would pass off the scene, but love would abide. And so we're in verses 9 through 12, he gives this message, an idea that completeness was coming. And we'll flesh that out as we go through it. But completeness was coming. He talks about parts. He says, I know in part. He he uses language like that. But he also uses language of um, completeness. And uh, we'll show that as we walk through the passage here. Again, verse 9 says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect or complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away. What verses 9 and 10 seem to be saying is that the Lord would give a complete revelation of himself. A complete or perfect revelation of himself. Meaning not leaving anything that lacked for believers that the Lord would fully reveal what he was doing in the world at that time. Again, verse 19, he says, We know in part, so that connects back to the knowledge, and we prophesy in part, connecting back to prophecy. See, you see, it just keeps flowing. He says, We've got parts. We've got pieces. And, And knowledge is a piece, for now, that he talks about. And prophecy is a piece that they had at that time. But he said, but there's something coming that's better, you might say. He says, that which is perfect, that which is complete, when it comes, what happens to the parts? They're done away. So he's saying there's coming a time when knowledge, prophecy, and tongues as well, uh, they'll be done away. So the question is, What is the completeness? What is the perfection he's talking about here in in verse 10? That's the, as some people say, the million-dollar question of this passage. It's probably the most debated element of this passage. And if you didn't know it, 
this is a very debated passage in Christian circles and commentaries and so forth. And I'm certainly giving you uh, uh, my viewpoints on it. But he says, when that which is perfect has come, that which in part will be done away. And I think what he's saying, I think the completeness he's talking about is the revelation that God was, was still revealing even at that time. God was still giving direct messages to apostles and prophets. He was still directing them, sometimes through supernatural moments of, of special knowledge. And, and, and what he was doing was he was continuing to reveal what Paul calls the gospel of the grace of God, or some places he calls it the mystery. Just turn over with me for a moment to Romans chapter 16. Verse 25, and let me show you what we're talking about here. Romans 16, 25. Paul had a heart for people. He wanted to see Christians grow in the grace of God. And that's what's coming out in Romans 16. And I'll read verse 24 to start. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. In verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, and the word mystery just means secret, kept secret since the world began. Verse 26, but now has been made manifest, or it's now become known, and by the prophetic scriptures have been made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. Paul talks there about what he calls my good news, my gospel, a body of truth that the Lord began to impart to him on the road to Damascus and on. You read about it in the book of Acts, and you read about it in Galatians chapter 1 and 2, and you see this. Jesus Christ had more to say after his crucifixion, after his ascension. He had more to say to the world. More was coming. And he chose Paul. And he began to tell him about what Paul would later call the gospel of the grace of God. And the door of salvation was going to open to the whole world, apart from Israel, apart from God's plans for an earthly kingdom. And God was going to begin something new. And you see in the Bible, you see in the New Testament scriptures, a transition that occurred. God transitioned from using Israel as a nation, as his special people, to using the church, the body of Christ, as his special people to the world today. And that, the body of Christ is only believers, doesn't matter your ethnic background, doesn't matter where you come from, but God was establishing the body of Christ in those times. And he was using Paul, and he was using others. And and part of that establishing of the church and giving that church the instructions, the revelation we would need to go forward. There was a time of these supernatural sign gifts. We needed people in that time to be able to speak things from God because the scriptures were not even complete yet. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, he would still go on to write Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, Romans, I think, comes after 1 Corinthians. He still had more to say And God was not done speaking yet. So I believe in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, when that which is perfect or complete, and that's what that word means. It just means to come to the end, to come to completion. 
It's the word telos. It means complete or mature. That once the revelation God had in mind was complete, there would be no more need for the pieces that came before, the parts. And the parts are knowledge, prophecy, signs, those supernatural spiritual gifts that were in operation at that time. Once we had the truth we needed, a full picture of Jesus Christ is shown. You don't need that stuff anymore. That's the idea that Paul's communicating here. What it kind of reminds me of is uh, when you watch previews for movies. You know, you ever go to the movies and you sit there and they start showing what's called trailers, right? And you're seeing previews of movies coming out. And what do you get? You get like a two-minute snippet. You get parts of the movie thrown together, little pieces and parts, and and, it gives you an idea, right? But But you don't know what all the plot is from the trailer, not a good trailer anyway. Shouldn't reveal all the plot in a preview. But anyway, you get a part of what the movie's going to be about. And it's supposed to make you excited when you get the complete thing, the complete version of it. And that's exactly how Paul is treating this revelation of truth for the age in which we live. It's like, we're getting pieces of it, guys. It's still coming in. But when it's whole, when it's complete, you don't need the previews anymore. You've, you've seen the movie. Once you've seen the movie, going back and watching the previews is not very exciting, is it? It just doesn't do you any good anymore. And that's kind of what he's saying here. The Lord was going to give a complete revelation of himself, and that which was in part would no longer be needed. As we go on, he says in verse 11, he begins a couple of examples of what he's talking about. And in verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. So here he kind of shifts to the idea of maturing. Maturing as a Christian. And the point here I believe he's making is that the church would mature, mature past spiritual gifts. They would mature past it. Again, it's that idea of don't get so caught up in that which is temporary that you, you lose sight of what the complete picture is, what God has in mind, his intention. We understand that when a child, a, a young boy grows into a man, many things happen. That, that boy has to grow physically, should be growing socially and mentally and morally even. I mean, that's the full picture of maturity. It's not just physical stature. And we, and we all experience that as you go from child to adult, right? That's a natural process. We all understand it to some degree. And Paul here says it's kind of like that for the church at large here in the sense that we go from being a child to be growing to, to mature to adulthood. That's the idea of verse 11. Now the word for child there, uh, well, it's actually the same word Paul had referred to the Corinthians back in chapter 3 when he called them babes in Christ. And the word for child has the idea of a a small child, like a toddler or an infant, you know. Uh, I mean, it's kind of the picture of immaturity, right? What do you have to do with a little infant or a toddler? (laughs) You really have to keep an eye on them. A lot of supervision is necessary and structuring, you know, kind of like. Otherwise, they're going to have their fork and the the electrical outlet or be hanging from the ceiling fan or something crazy. At least at my house, it seems like that's the way it goes. But anyway, maybe not at your house. (laughs) But but you get in all kinds of mischief and trouble if you don't have your parents kind of shepherding you, especially at those young ages. 
It doesn't take much to get into trouble fast when you're that size because you don't know all the things you're going to learn, right? So we know that's just the beginning of the process. And I think of, uh, you know, the things a small child like that needs too. They, need, they, want, they want to usually, you know, a lot of times they want to carry around a blanket. They might want a pacifier. There's probably a really important need for diapers. <laughs> I was just thinking back, we've got seven children, and I was asking my wife, I said, was there a time when we didn't have diapers for a little bit in between? I don't remember it if there was. Uh, it's not, it doesn't stand out. I mean, it just seems like diapers have been a staple of the current household from eternity past. <laughs> Since the foundation of the world. No, that's what it feels like. I don't remember a time beyond that anymore. It's very foggy. But that's the things a little child needs, right? Now, if you have to give an adult a blanket and a pacifier, and I won't use the third word, <laughs> but, you know, you say, like, that's not maturity, right? That's not, we're not maturing. So what's the maturity he has in mind here? And I think it is. He's talking about maturing past things we don't need anymore. He's talking about their, you know, their outlook on these spiritual gifts would need to mature as God moved away from them. See, the Corinthians, I mean, if we were going to take a vote out of all the New Testament churches, they probably would win the vote of being the most immature church, the most immature group of people in, in the New Testament. And it's for these very reasons. They valued these things that were not near as important as love. And Paul, in a sense, kind of challenges them to mature past it and understand. As long as these things are in operation, great, use them. You'll see that in the next chapter. But don't be fooled. These are only temporary. Make love your main thing. That's what he's saying, because it never ceases, it never fails. Make that the main thing. And mature, as God's truth came in, mature with his truth. Something better was coming. And then, in verse 12, he uses another example, this time of a mirror. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... But then I shall know, just as I also am known. And here the point is, the church would possess a clear revelation. Again, a body of truth was being made known. The need for the gifts would pass off the scene. And here he uses the idea of looking into a dim mirror. Now, Corinth was known for its mirrors. They made mirrors those, in those days out of metals, and they polished it. And maybe you've seen, like, if you look at a metal plate or something, you can kind of see a reflection of yourself. And to be fair, today we can machine polish things to get a pretty nice reflection. But in those days, they didn't have the big machines and buffers and all that. Everything's by hand. And so the mirrors of that age probably wouldn't compare as well to the mirrors of our time, right? When you look at a mirror in the morning, you expect to see in high def, 4K, that old mug of yours, right? <laughs> I want to see every wrinkle. <laughs> No, but that's what we expect, right? A very clear reflection. And I think what Paul's saying here, as the revelation was coming in, he's like, guys, 
I get it. Right now, we don't have the clear picture yet. Things are foggy. So we need people in our church that have gifts of prophecy and knowledge to help guide us until the fog clears. Until the mirror gives you us a full picture of who Jesus Christ is and what we're about in God's age of grace. Again, this is a transitional idea going on here. And he, and he recognizes that here. He says, now it's like looking into that dim, foggy mirror. It's, 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 I get the outline. I see some of the features, but it's not high definition. It's not super clear yet. But he talks about a time's coming when it will be clear. He says, I know in part. There's that part idea again. But then, when that which is complete is coming, as the previous verse said, when that happens, what? I shall know just as I also am known. And I think what he's simply saying there is, there's coming a time when when we look at God's truth, it won't be foggy. It'll be as clear as looking somebody right in the face. And that's what he's talking about when he says, I will know as I also am known. I don't think he's talking about standing before the Lord. I think he's talking about when the truth is all made known, then I will understand the truth as clear as you looking at me right now. Right? That's, that's when you, if you, you know, you want to, uh, you look at somebody's face, face to face, right? And if your vision's pretty decent, I mean, we can make that caveat. But you see, right? You see clearly. And we, that's how we recognize each other. It doesn't usually take long. You know, you glance over, you recognize somebody by their facial features, right? That's how we know each other. That's what Paul's talking about. That's how I'm known. You look over, you see my face. Right? And it's clear. And what he's saying is, during this transition that they were going to, it was going from a foggy mirror to just look like going to looking at somebody face to face. No more fog. You know, it's like when you... Sometimes you get out of the shower and you go up to the mirror and it's all foggy, right? And, uh, you know, probably for a guy, you probably wipe the fog off before you start shaving, right? So you don't miss a big streak, you know, or something. And probably for the gals, you probably want the, the fog off the mirror before you start putting on eyeshadow, right? You'd be like all over the place, right? Because you want to see clear at that point. But again, that's what he's talking about. There's coming a time when the church would have the clear revelation and we wouldn't need the partial stuff anymore. The, those supernatural sign gifts wouldn't be needed. So the Corinthians, again, don't hold on to these things so tightly because they're not going to be with you for much longer. But love, you can hold on to that forever. And then verse 13, he reaches sort of the climax of his argument here, how love is supreme over gifts. And he says, and now abide or remain faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love are the abiding virtues. Why does he use the word abiding? Because there's things in this passage that are passing. There's that which abides or remains and that which is passing away. And he says, set your values in accordance with that. Faith, hope, love, these remain. Even as supernatural knowledge, prophecy, and tongues would pass away, the Christianity would still have a need to walk in faith to the truth that God revealed, to trust him, to continue to hold to their hope in Jesus Christ, looking forward to the day when we are with him, and to love one another and those around us. That need would continue throughout the ages, and they would never go away. Faith, hope, and love are the abiding virtues. But even so, he says, love is the greatest. 
And that's, that may be because love is fully experienced through eternity. Love is experienced through eternity. Now, Paul may just be saying love is the top, the chief, the best. He says things like that in other places. Romans 13, 8, he says, Owe no man anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. In Ephesians 5, 2, he calls believers to walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And in Colossians 3.14, he says, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So love is always presented as the supreme virtue of the Christian life that the Spirit's working within us. And that may, may be all that Paul's saying, but there actually may be something more to his, his thinking here. As he's talking about, as time goes on, gifts, these supernatural gifts would pass off the scene. He says, faith, hope, and love are going to be necessary. But you know, if you fast forward even into eternity future, when we all are in the presence of Jesus Christ our Lord and God our Father, you could say at that time, your faith will be sight. Today we're called to walk by faith and not by sight, but then they'll basically be the same thing. Our faith will be, will be right there in front of us. The one we've trusted will be in our presence. And Romans 8, 24 and 25 say... Uh, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I bring that passage up because he talks about hope. When you're in heaven with the Lord, your hope is realized. Your hope is realized. You've, you've, you've walked into it, and there it is. That doesn't mean we won't still have positive expectation throughout eternity with the Lord. But you can see how faith and hope, they kind of become different in heaven because they're realized. The object of them is now in our presence. But love, when you get to heaven, love is just beginning. It's just beginning. It will be experienced through eternity. And that may be why Paul says it's the greatest. So again, let's major on what God calls the greatest. And I think we can be like the Corinthians at times. We, get, we do get caught up in what we can see and, and what we can achieve and accomplishment. And it's certainly no doubt that we just, as people, innately have a fascination for miracles, the miraculous. We would all hear, I'm sure we, if, we would all love to see a miracle, wouldn't we? Who wouldn't want to see a miracle, right? And you see in Scripture, God's parts the Red Sea through Moses. He gives manna from heaven. He gave water from rocks. When Jesus was on the earth, he healed lepers. He raised the dead, and those his apostles after him could even do those kinds of things. And we read again in a time when people could speak in foreign languages they never knew instantaneously. And you could all be like, wow, with all of that. Look at what God can do. But none of that, none of that is the greatest work of God which happens in you. Because each of us that knows Christ, the Spirit of Christ dwells within us, and every day is leading us and seeking to transform us into the same image of Christ that we realize in our daily lives the things Paul's talking about, that we live out love to those around us. Love 
coming forth from our heart, that's God's greatest miracle, to transform a sinner into his saint that serves him in this world today. And so as we continue to go through our holiday season now and we move forward, we can be reminded from this passage to keep the main thing the main thing. This is a time to bless others, to love others, and not get caught up in things that aren't the priority. Let's pray. Father, we just give you thanks for this passage and how it speaks to our hearts, Lord, and challenges our hearts, Lord, to just look again into your face anew and to see your love for us, that that love can be realized in our lives and that that's your greatest work in our hearts to each day make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. That indeed is the greatest miracle this world has ever known. So, Father, may we walk in love. May we put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and love others, especially this time of year, as a lot of times this time of year uh, causes people to feel actually more unloved and lonely. And this is a time we can come alongside others and just bless them. Lord, we just give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.